Talking Theater with Sir Holworth Felix Smooth, the only podcast on earth about the theater. Critics. 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 Good day. My name is Soho with Felix Smooth, and apart from being the host of this podcast, Talking Theatre, the only podcast on earth about the theatre, this week I'm a very angry gentleman indeed. I like to think that the good listeners of my ear lectures are not the sort of people who read the red top papers or watch the sort of mind-numbing reporting done by Mr. Snow, Mr. Murphy, and the short people at Channel 4. And yet, their breaking of a frankly preposterous story yesterday involving my persons must be acknowledged and defended, my lud. I have to admit to being slightly flattered, being implicated in a sex scandal at 83 is what we called in the old days a bit of a swizz, and yet the chances themselves are a gross impertinence, not to mention pretty gross in their nature. And it almost goes without saying that I flatly deny each and every one of them. I never twisted the nipples of Anne Whittacombe at the 1994 Conservative Conference, naked or otherwise. Let me state that categorically for the record. I'm not sure I've ever twisted the nipple of anybody, including myself. Certainly not sexually. Nipples are purely ceremonial when it comes to the bedroom, if you ask me. Something interesting to look at, perhaps flick in jest. But to twist, I ask you. Of course, and I said this to that cow from the mail, if you need further proof, you can ask Mickey Portillo, because I was his guest the entire weekend of conference, and we shared a twin room at the premiere in Bournemouth. Now, on to the second charge of lechery. I can tell you now, I have never even met Jude Law, let alone fondled him in a pantry at Kevin Spacey's 40th birthday party. As a long-suffering celiac, the last place you'd find me is in any pantry, I can assure you. Again, for further proof, I'd suggest you take us up with Spacey, though you'll be lucky to get through to him. I haven't heard from him in a while now. Not sure why. I must, must chase that up. He's a great actor and a, a dear friend. Finally, no, and I can't believe I'm even having to say this out loud, but Fiona Bruce seemed confused last night on Newsnight, so I'll go over it again, I suppose. There was a hotel room, but there was no horse, there was no pumpkin, and that photo is clearly doctored. I deny each and every scrap and tittle of it all. Listen, listeners, I am an ardent lover. I make no bones about it. It's on my CV, for God's sake. And Sean, my partner, will tell you as much. And we have our own little quirks. Of course we do games and tools in the bedroom, of course. Yes, we've gone at it like nobody's watching. Yes, we've gone at it like lots of people are watching. Speeding up at the end to induce an imaginary applause. But rough sex at my age, at eighty-three, my right hip fractures from just descending onto the toilet seat. It's a fabrication, a nonsense, and it's 
Well, it's bollocks. I'm minded to lay this at the feet of the Murdoch Press, or as I call them, the Murder Press. Mm -hmm. Satire. Now, I know I shouldn't give credit to a man who looks like a tortoise without a shell, and it's true that since he's found love with the dear Jerry Balls, he's been like a toddler who can't give up the titty. All coy and genteel, and I'm not responsible for untold death and misery through the myriad of lies my several publications propagate. He's in love, and who can deny it? Nevertheless, he still wields power, and like the Dark Lord Sauron Voldemort, or one of those nasty ones with the red lollipops from the Star Wars franchise, he may be quiet for some time, but his unrenting evil never sleeps. On this occasion, though, I don't think it's him. No, this has the dirty, grubby, sovereign-ringed hands of one Miss Sonia Friedman. I have no doubt that upon hearing of my intention to lay bare theatre criticism and the cult of reviewing, that the renowned theatre producer and part-time Avon Lady Friedman has leapt to the defence of those sycophants that adorn her shows with the many five-star trinkets by bringing my reputation into disrepute. Well, Sonia, I have a middle finger and I'd love you to swivel on it. You may have got this story into the headlines and on the front pages of a few rags, but the public will see through your tomfoolery, and I suspect you'll see a slight dip in your ticket sales at the Book of Mormon HQ in protest. Incidentally, I would also like to ask the stage newspaper why they only featured the story on page six. A ludicrous display of unbridled mendacity it May be. Nevertheless, if Holbert Smooth's name is in the title, it must go front page. For goodness sakes! Oh! My final gripe with the whole business is that all the articles seems to make sarcastic side comments about my delivery on the podcast, saying I'm at the best of times hard to follow, and at the worst of times completely unintelligible, or, as The Sun put it, like the post-drunk man in the corner of the pub, on his own, mumbling to the dartboard about where he went wrong all those years ago. <laughs> Unintelligible. I've been called many things in my life. Selfish, impatient, a, a wanker, but never have I been called unintelligible. That is pure monk-turd Phil Doozy, if ever I've heard it. They ought to have their shingle called fumblers shodden under two dang blasters and go blooded into a house dollars and jungle belly. And if that's not clear, then I don't know what is. Now, let's talk some bloody theatre, shall we? On with the show! The notion of criticism is one everyone should be familiar with because criticism begins from the moment we are born. Whether or not we are destined to be award-winning actors once in a generation like myself or second-rate dental assistants like my partner Sean. Our worst critics would be our parents, our teachers and of course ourselves. And in many respects it is the necessary part of life. It's important, is it not, for a parent to let their child know when they're not functioning as they should be. I'm sure if you eavesdropped into any household today, you'd hear the familiar chastisement of you haven't polished the silver properly, or you haven't fed the gibbons. Will you feed the gibbons? I told you to feed the gibbons! And the children launching return attacks, reviewing Cook's luncheon, perhaps, or rating the maid's cleaning. 
humans aren't consistently reviewing. You know, I'm guilty of it myself. Uh, for instance, I've always made it a practice of mine to review each of my lovers post-copulation. As the fading feeling of ecstasy drifts away post-climax, I've been known to produce a sheet where I make a few short notes and fill in a small chart, scoring lovers in four categories of commitment, longevity, use of space and flexibility. Uh, zero is non-existent, a score of one is poor, two fair, three good, four excellent, and five... Let's do that again, please. Once filled in, I'll sit with the lover, take them through it, pointing out where they might like to improve and how those improvements might be actioned. If all goes to plan, I'll make a pot of Earl Grey and peanut butter on toast. And the reviewing process is complete. So yes, look, look, come on. We review and we expect criticism in our lives. That's a given. But theatre criticism is a different business altogether, and it's hard to justify whichever way you sit and swivel on it. Trying to explain what the use of theatre criticism is, is a bit like trying to explain what pubic hair is for. It's there in abundance, we assume it must have a purpose, but what its use is, we can't quite grasp. For some people, that means growing it out, expanding it, perhaps even shaping it into little pubic animals like those bush sculptures bewildered people craft, all in order to better understand it and to enjoy it. For others, it's a case of cutting it away because it's irritating, it gets in the way of the good stuff, and because your parents tell you it's sinful to keep it and shaving it all off will make the baby Jesus smile. In this sense, theatre criticism is somewhat polarising, with some, the stupid people, seeing that there is value in the endeavour, and some, the right people, thinking that if art is good, it is good without anyone needing to say it is, and if it is bad, it is bad without anyone needing to say it is. These are not always welcome criticisms of criticism, though. When Michael Billington found out I was doing this podcast, he threatened me with legal action and then with a crowbar. Billington, by the way, really is the heavy at the Guardian newspaper. It's not just a rumour. Aside from being the head critic, he's also the head of security and regularly checks the CCTV for dissemblers and what he calls saboteurs. If you work there and you're caught by him taking too long a time for toilet breaks or lunch breaks or to grab a coffee, then you're likely to return to your desk and find a small post-it note on your computer screen with the time you took written on it. Oh. Underneath will be the words too long with several more O's in the two than is necessary and it will be underlined as well. If a second infringement is seen, then Billington's next play is to have a friendly word with your line manager, with your wife and your GP. And if you continue to third and fourth infringements, then, as he often says, the games begin. Workers have described waking up at 4am in the morning to hear a tapping on the bedroom window. When they look, the 65-year-old Billington silhouette is there, but only the whites of his eyes and a broad red smile can be seen. When the person rubs their eyes to look again, he is gone. Others have reported excrement being left on their doorstep and their pets being stolen for an hour before being returned shaved or with makeup on. So I'm sure that Millington will be listening and I'm sure he disagrees with my sessions on the use of theatre criticism. There is none. And it's possible, it's possible, he may go some way to trying to halt these proceedings. Perhaps pushing his turds through my letterbox or even thieving Keith, my iguana, before returning him in a few hours, 
his reptilian face made up like Julian Clary. This, however, will not stop my resolve. Mr. Billington, you should know this. I have a middle finger, and I'd love you to swivel on it. Perhaps the real gripe of mine is not with the criticism, but with the critic. Actually, that's exactly what my gripe is with. My dear friend and a former bridge partner, the late Kenneth Williams, said of critics that they were like the eunuchs and the harem. They're there every night, they see it done every night, but they can't do it themselves. <laughs> He's talking about sexy time. And of course, it's completely right. A critic's main occupation is turning a fashionable phrase, attempting to make themselves look more impressive than they think it is they're meant to be reviewing. Imagine having reviewers in other walks of life. I mean, I ask you. The plumber I recently had fix a leaky tap in our downstairs Lulu did such a horrendous job that I refused to pay him. But did I take out a three-quarts-a-page ad in the local paper or on a popular website? going into great detail about how he scratched the skirting boards, muddied the carpet, and complained every time I told him I could see his arse crack over his jeans, and I didn't like it. No, I did not. I had the good graces to keep my opinions to myself, sharing them only with his boss in a short telephone call in which he assured me that Justin would indeed lose his job over the affair. And that was enough to satisfy me. Surely it is enough. For a terrible actor to be in a terrible show with a terrible piece of direction and a terrible piece of choreography, all terrible, you get the idea, is it not enough that they are in the thing without some busybody coming along and telling them they're terrible? And one must remember that these critics have no discernible qualification. Of course you can take the writing for those who can't do degree at the University of East Anglia, but that really is the only qualification that comes close to being appropriate. And even then it may as well be taught by a set of marmoset monkeys. It's so irrelevant and pointless. And that's not my own criticism, you understand. That's actually what it says in the course description on the university website. It's very much an assumed occupation. Like food critics who are basically tubby cheapskates who have deluded themselves into the notion that people really care about what they think of a piece of rare beef they ate sometime, somewhere. And the theatre is comparable. One doesn't like to trade in barbs, okay? But when Charles Spencer directs a version of Ibsen's A Doll's House, and it's good, then I'll listen to his opinion on directing Ibsen. Until then, he should shut his big fat mouth. Kenneth Williams, in that respect, was right. Unless you do it yourself, then you're welcome to your opinion, but nobody needs it in print or indeed on a computer screen. So shut your big fat mouth. I have such fond memories of the enigma that was my carry-on friend. In the late 1970s, I used to go bar-hopping with Ken Williams and Dennis Nilsson, dodging in and out of cocktail haunts along the cobbled Soho streets. By that time, Ken was a huge star after headlining some of the best and worst British comedy films and was also the leading gamer on prime-time chat shows. Dennis, meanwhile, was just a lowly civil servant at the time, but of course went on to become the United Kingdom's worst serial killer in the modern era. Of course, Ken and I were mortified when we found out to think we'd sucked pino coladas with a man who strangled a large percentage of the people he met was enough to blow my toupee off. They say he murdered them because he enjoyed their company so much he never wanted them to leave, but I never took offence to that theory. Oh, Dennis, oh, Dennis, what a business. I phoned him not long after he'd been arrested. I said to him, 
boiled heads and saucepans for sexual gratification. It's all a bit much, isn't it, Des? And he'd say, don't knock it till you've tried it. I was reminded of the time Boy George was on the Johnny Carson show when quizzed on his proclivities, said he preferred a pot of tea to sex. And I said as much to Des, I said, I'd rather have a pot of tea, Dennis, though perhaps not from your stove. Incidentally, I must congratulate David Tennant on a wonderful portrayal of Nilsson in the recent ITV drama of the same name. He really captured the humanity of the necrophile. I'm told Tennant actually killed a man in order to get into the mind of Des, which is perhaps a bold choice, but you know, that's quirky David for you. Of course, to me, he will always be Doctor Who. What a shame. You're listening to Sorking Theatre, the only podcast on earth about the theatre. Next up, we'll be looking at the distinction between types of critic and going over a few of my old clippings. Mmm, lovely, lovely, lovely. I can't wait. For now, here's a quick word from this week's sponsors. Did you know you have a friend? Did you? This friend will protect you. This friend will love you. This friend can be relied upon. And this friend will kill for you. Do you know the name of this friend? His name is AR15. That's an AR15 and he wants to get to know you. The GZL Super Duty AR-15 pistol was designed with the philosophy that high quality does not mean high cost. The 10.3 inch barrel is precision machined and button rifled in-house and features chrome lighting and a carbine length gas system. Combined with Super 42 buffer spring, the H2 buffer weight keep the pistol running reliably and shooting flat. In other words, this gun will take your fucking head off, whether you like it or not. Now I know what you're thinking. Over 4,000 children are killed every year from firearms. Shouldn't we get rid of guns? Well, to all you communists, I'll say this. If you want to defend yourself against a gun, the solution isn't no guns, it's more guns. If these kids had had another gun, they could have killed the gun that shot them by using that other gun. The AR-15 is that gun. Buy a gun. And let's get shooting again. The Republican National Committee sponsors Talking Theater. The only podcast in our great land about the theater. It's important before we move on to actual reviews that we say a word on categorization of the reviewer. This entire podcast seeks only to critique the genuine critic and not this modern phenomenon of the blogger. In my day, a blogger was something your father would give you six of the best with if you caught with your hand in the toffee jar. But these days, a blogger is apparently a type of reviewer. An extremely quick Google tells me they are commonly graduates of 
third-rate universities who have recently moved to the city and can't get a job. So, rather than reassess the choices they've made and the money they've spent attempting to fulfil unrealistic pipe dreams with useless degrees and doing something about it, they instead turn to designing free websites where they critique others' lives through the medium of the poisoned keyboard. Now, a blogger is very ordinary to look at, but the putrid smell of their self-importance is certainly hard to miss. They'll often contact theatres for free tickets and be gifted a programme and a free drink when they attend shows to blog them. Perplexingly, theatres seem to be encouraging these jobless nobodies by treating them the same as actual reviewers. Now, I know we've already come to the conclusion that even reviewers barely know what they're talking about, but at least somebody is actually paying them to do it, for God's sake. And the theatres get the necessary good or the bad publicity from it. With a blogger, there is literally nothing to be gained from the exercise. Worst yet, they turn their blogs into podcasts and YouTube videos. Like anybody's going to tune in and listen to 15 minutes of you talking about why you thought the show lacked Oh, I don't know. What do they talk about these days? Oh, diversity. The diversity that you require for a show as a freeloading leech. Yes, that's rather good, isn't it? If reviewers are the birds that sit on elephants to catch the occasional ride, well, bloggers really are the parasitic worms that fester in the elephant's assholes. We get it. You like musicals, and you know one actor, and they're going to let you interview them. Well done you. Have a biscuit. But for goodness sake, go and get a proper job, and pay some bloody tax, will you? I'm reluctant to make the same criticism I do of real critics, and ask bloggers to actually go and try and do what they are blogging, as in direct or acts themselves, precisely because they'd love nothing more than to do it. Anything to hear more of their own voice, see more of their own face, and digest more of their own feculence. Of course, I'm aware that I'm likely to receive some backlash from this as the bloggers write blogs about me and my talent and my podcast, but I can take some solace in the fact that, like all their other blogs, nobody will actually read it. And I think we'll leave it at that. Oh, one final thing for the bloggers. If you do have a problem and you do want to write a little blog, just consider this. I have a middle finger. Come and take a sit and swivel on it. Quote, Holworth Felix so smooth is the biggest cunt I've ever seen. Cunt sing, cunt act, cunt dance. End quote. Yes, it's come to the inevitable point in the show where I declare a bias and interest and I think outline a few specific occasions where I feel from my personal experience where the reviewers got it right, and where they got it wrong. Mostly wrong, dead wrong. I do this in good faith and for balance. If anyone has taught me about the need for good faith and balance, it is the one-legged Macedonian tribe who I took a Buddhist retreat with in the late eighties. In the time it takes for a female to gestate another human being, nine months, I slept, ate, drank, worked and played with some of the best damn disabled monks I've ever met. It was regimented and rigorous, but so rewarding. 
By day, it would be meditation and prayer, and by night, I'd strap up one leg and join in the festivities as we congregated around a large fire and all hopped about to Gloria Estefan's Get On Your Feet. It was great times, and I miss you guys. Now, to the first example. The above quotation was from my one and only foray into the musical theatre in Going Overboard, the ill-fated 1958 sequel to Cole Porter's Anything Goes. I played the naval officer, Admiral Codface, the captain of the ship, who's racked with guilt when a sharp turn to starboard sends his daughter overboard. The raucous comedy shifts to melodrama in Act 2, which I think was likely its downfall. When something starts like Noises Off and finishes like Titus Andronicus, you know you're going to be in trouble. The stage was covered in blood by the end, and I mean covered. To this day, though, I still believe Why Wouldn't the Fishes Save Her is one of the finest closing numbers in the entire canon. And I recall bursting into tears every night as the entire cast sang in a 14-part harmony on the most beautiful sandy beach set, with me stood over my dead daughter's washed-up body downstage centre. And nobody but nobody expected that body to lift and spin as it did. You couldn't argue with the reaction from the audience. They were absolutely dumbstruck. The critics got it wrong. Now, yes, I didn't dance in time. Yes, I didn't sing in tune. And yes, my acting was wooden and about as animated as a chair. I don't know. Uh, just a chair. You know, like a, a bog-standard chair. Uh, no, you're thinking of one too fancy. Don't just, uh, just imagine a very standard chair, like wood. You know, a wooden chair, like an old wooden chair, but uh, not, well, not old with character, you know, but not an interesting old, but like, not like an antique chair. Just imagine a chair, like a respectable, functioning wooden chair. So, yes, I was like, a chair was acting like a chair. However, 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 what the critics didn't realise is that's what I was going for. Admiral Codface couldn't sing. He couldn't dance, and he was about as interesting a character as a chair, a very ordinary chair. And if that's what they got from it, then I should have got five stars and a good review. I mean, it's a bit like a review of finding fault in James Corden's portrayal of the baker in the film adaptation of Into the Woods. For goodness sake, James clearly wanted the audience to think the baker was tone deaf and a glutton. Why else would he have sung the entire score like he did, or indeed put on so much weight for the part? Come on, guys, you must see the distinction. The second clipping, which demonstrates so clearly the critics getting it wrong, dead wrong, really wrong, was this turgid comment from an old broadsheet from the late 1970s. Holwood Felix to Smooth's portrayal is not only misjudged, it may as well be a call to arms to the right. Deep-set accents, a cavalier use of face putty, and as much dark makeup as one could ever imagine, the performance is offensive, and the production should be closed immediately. Now, you may say what you will, but we must remember that it was a different time, my lily pads. And whatever one thinks of the theatrical paraphernalia, the critic should review the performance and not those elements which would otherwise be a distraction. I say what I said to the reviewer at the time. If I don't play Nelson Mandela in this piece, then tell me who will. I still believe now it went some way to aiding his release, even. 
And besides that, the public liked it, even if the critics were dubious. I mean, I remember being at the opening night party, and both Jim Davidson and Bernard Manning told me they thought it was absolutely hilarious, which must count for something. I mean, Bill Cosby was less keen on it, admittedly, but then look at him now. I wouldn't trust anything he said these days, would you? Dirty boy. Looking through all my old notices to try and find an occasion when the critics got it right was a difficult one. But I did fish out one little trinket, which I shall read a snippet from now in the name of balance. Hall with Felix to Smooth's Inglebert is a sight to behold. Every flick of the eyes ever whistled line, every wild gesture comes together in a melee of excellence and demonstrates just why he is the foremost practitioner in this business of show. Not only is this review touching, it is completely right, I can assure you. I was astounding in this biographical play about the life of the popular singer Engelbert Humpeldinks, and all who saw it thought so. Now look, it's true. It only ran for one night. It's also true that it was technically a read-through in my garden to invited guests. Well, family. And I suppose, if you wanted to get down to the nitty-gritty, no press were in attendance, and so it was I who was forced to write this review. And of course, that is all absolutely true. But if you want to tear down the fortress of my will and my love of the theatre by nitpicking irrelevancies, then you go right ahead. But I'd rather say that sometimes critics can get it right. And in this case, they clearly did. And if you don't like that, well, I have only this to say to you all out there. I have a finger. And you can swivel on it. Having covered how pointless theatre criticism is, and how pointless theatre critics and bloggers are, and, and how pointless it is all, we must move now, of course, to correspondence. This week, Issa Prank, 23, from a bank in London, writes in with a very curious question and says, Hello, Issa. He writes, Dear Holworth, I am a huge fan of this massive thing you have going on. I've heard it can be quite hard and that it takes a lot of work to build to a climax, but it seems effortless when it gets to my end. Oh, you're very, very kind, Issa. Have you ever felt like you might not quite get there, and or perhaps that you'll get there too quickly? Uh, if so, how do you stop it from coming out the wrong way? Also, I hear you're a dog lover. I love walking my big dog and wondered if you also like dogging about on the countryside with your hands strapped tightly to a beast. Best wishes, Issa. Oh, Issa, 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 Issa. Oh, sound like we're in Beedy Beether or something, don't we? <laughs> Thank you so much for your kind letter. I'm assuming English isn't your first language, which is fine as... As long as it is, you know, your second or your at least your third. And as long as you're here legally, of course, and, and have a job. Otherwise, get out. <laughs> I'm, I'm only joking. Well, I'm half joking. Now, to your question. Yes, I do, I, well, I do find it gets hard. You're quite right. Um, but often it's the magnitude of the thing, which is what is so thrilling. And ultimately rewarding. I mean, I sometimes sit back with my hands behind my head and smile at how big it's become. Uh, it's a phenomenon, and uh, and when people like you gush as well, well, it's just thrilling, you know, it really is. 
Um, to your second question, yes, I have had a few fairy friends before. <laughs> Must admit to have been dogging with them regularly. I, I think if you're serious about looking after them and yourself, then you'll go twice a day. But uh, you can go three times. I know people who go three times if if you have the energy and, and the requisite materials and um, and sustenance as well. I, mean, I don't know about you, but uh, I've always felt so out of breath and tired after, within a few hours, just the memory of it will invigorate me and, and bring oh, me back. Sorry, my partner's just calling me. What? What's the problem? Well, it's a prank letter. What do you mean? It's a prank. Isa? Well, it's Russian, isn't it? I don't know. Well, it's Think about it. It's a prank. It's a prank? Yes. It's a, pr- a prank. Oh, I see. It's probably to do with today. Sorry, my partner's informing me that we have a prank letter, ladies and gentlemen. And, and dogging doesn't mean walking a dog. Well, what does it mean? Well, <laughs> Good grief. So all the stuff about my industry and the podcast being hard was... Um, Your penis. My penis isn't hard now. No, just in general. Oh, in general. Yeah. Oh, I see. Well, wrap yeah. up, please. Just try and wrap, wrap, wrap it up. Yes, well, 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 I'm sorry about that, ladies and gentlemen. Unfortunately, it seems Talking Theatre Towers has been infiltrated by another of Sonia's minions. No doubt um, capitalising on the stories in the papers. Um, as a rule, we pick one letter and immediately incinerate the rest, so I, I can't even segue to another piece of correspondence. Uh, so how best to, 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 to sign off? Uh, well, Sonia, if you are listening, no doubt you are, you have always reveled in your carnage. I hope sincerely you are happy with yourself. And all that is left to say, or, or rather sing, is this. Take a tip and learn, son of your freedom man. No one believes your drivel. So sit on my finger, don't swivel. You, you bitch. Well, that's all we have time for today. Join me next week when Sean will actually bother to read the correspondence before he hands it to me. No, I love you, don't get me wrong, but at the end of the day, you made a real fuck up there. Uh, anyway, we'll be uh, delving into the weird and wonderful world of amateur dramatics, and I'll be asking those all-important questions like, how do community theatres get that specific smell they have? Why is amateur dramatics frequented mostly by those so close to the end? Oh, I may have answered the first question with the second. And why do estate agents think they're allowed to murder the work of Roger and Hammerstein just because nobody of note is actually going to see it? You've been listening to Talking Theatre, the only podcast on earth about the theatre. Until next time, to you I say, good night.